This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector's podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Carver Ties. Last fall, when Visit Lake Charles wanted to target Austin, Texas with its culinary travel campaign, it used a secret ingredient, a fleet of rideshare vehicles covered with tantalizing images of Lake Charles. And while those cars cruised the streets of Austin, Lake Charles saw a 65% increase in web visitation from the Austin area and an 8% bump in overnight and restaurant sales year over year. Carvertise has helped hundreds of national brands and DMOs extend their messaging to where people live through a fleet of over a half a million wrapped Uber and Lyft cars. And you can send those cars to this summer's biggest events in your key markets. Place your brand and message front and center with Carvertise. Check out the video at carvertise.com slash brands. And now it's on to our show. Since 2013, Brian Applegarth has led the advancement of cannabis tourism and travel. He is the founder of the Cannabis Travel Association International and principal of Applegarth Consultative Services. Brian is a data-driven consultant who helps destination marketing organizations strategically navigate the cannabis and hemp travel trend that centers around community stewardship, the development of the experience economy, and engaging content and marketing. In 2019, Brian was the sole expert advisor on the first ever national research study on the cannabis travel audience in the United States. He leads the Cannabis and Hemp Task Force for Destinations International and the Cannabis and Hemp Council for the California Travel Association. Brian and his work have been featured in Forbes, The Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Travel Weekly, and many other national and global media outlets. He's also been a featured speaker at industry events and conferences, including the American Hotel and Lodging Association, the Cal Travel Summit, the Destinations International Advocacy Summit, the UNWTO Rethinking Tourism Summit, and the EuroAm Cannabis Business Conference in Prague. Brian is a certified cannabis sommelier a certified cannabis therapy consultant, and an award-winning amateur documentary filmmaker. His passion for his work is palpable, and he believes that the modern-day cannabis and hemp travel trend is unlocking a new era of travel experience grounded in well-being and balance. Brian Applegarth, welcome to DMOU. Hey, Bill, good morning. Thanks for having me on. You bet. You have been on our list for let's get him on the show for a long time. And I'm glad we finally coordinated our schedules to have this conversation. So let's get right to it. Your first question, roughly half of the states in the United States, which I guess signifies that we're not all that united, have passed laws legalizing the recreational use of cannabis. Tell us what the past decade of enlightenment has shown the states that have legalized weed as a tool for destination development. Yeah, well, it's it's a unique opportunity. All but, I believe, three states at this point have legal cannabis laws, whether they're medical or adult use recreational. So making the space for cannabis to really live at that center point of well-being and understanding that medical travel is relevant as well as leisure travel once a destination flips to adult use recreational legal landscape is all worthy conversation and time well spent. When I started in this in 2013, I really got kind of obsessed with a lot of information, content, data, and it's been an amazing journey along the way. Something that came up for me in that journey was looking closely at when alcohol came out of prohibition. And what was the blueprint? What was the roadmap? What tourism assets exist today that are tied back into that exercise with alcohol? 
We have the Prohibition tunnels, the moonshiners, a lot of storytelling content. And of course, today you have the beer trails, the wine trails, the spirit trails, and it goes on and on and on and on. So thinking with the end in mind, where is cannabis headed as a travel trend, as well as a destination development tool, the opportunities are expansive. When it comes to the beginning of this, it was really, I think the big learning for me was, uh, was the opportunity for destinations to look at this from a destination development point of view and an industry development point of view. And then layer on top of that, the visitor economy development strategy and having a seat at the table with elected officials if they so choose. And if destination organizations want to move in that direction, that is a unique sandbox and a unique capability that cannabis and hemp both offer because the data is extremely young. Everybody is needing education around this and what it represents and exists today. And there's an opportunity there to really take a more proactive role for destination organizations in that destination development discussion, representing the development of the visitor economy in relationship to cannabis travel experiences for visitors. And how do you navigate that? And what are all the opportunities in that journey? So it's been fascinating navigating this. Yeah, and there is the stigma right, that uh, you and I talked about as we prepped for this conversation, that is going to last for some time. And some of that stigma is smell. Some of it is just the historical prohibition of cannabis, you know, for recreational use. And if memory serves, the first state to legalize for recreational use was Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I remember very quickly after that, the then Colorado tourism secretary came out and said, you know, it's great, but we're not going to put that in any of our marketing materials. How has that moved forward over the years? And are you seeing that it's more of an underground kind of marketing effort that's taking place to say, hey, you can enjoy in this state, but you can't in yours. And that could be a motivation to pick one state over another? Yeah, you're opening up some good ideas and topics here. And this is another reason cannabis is extremely unique, right? It's a controlled substance, uh, especially the THC-rich activated THC with intoxicating effects. Let's be clear about that. That part of the cannabis and hemp discussion, which is just a piece of the pie, but also the most talked about, the most feared, the most misunderstood that's incredibly relevant and that's caused a unique landscape for destinations to navigate because cannabis is unique in that way. Now, Colorado was the first state to legalize recreational adult use cannabis, which in my mind opens up the era of leisure travel, right? Prior to that, there was medical legalization. California legalized cannabis medically back in 1996 and was the first state to do so. Right. There was a very mature decades long medical industry in California that was pretty expansive. You know, cannabis was prescribed pretty readily because it's really a frontline medicine. A lot of people look at cannabis as a frontline application to improve quality of life, how you ever you want to define that. And California was on the forefront of that because they were also informed by kind of the social movements of California leading up to that point with the beatniks, the hippies, the back to the land movement. A lot of cannabis was ingrained in California culture, and that includes cultivation, genetics, and beyond. So when you look at destinations, when Colorado flipped it adult use legal, I'd first point to the hotel data. There was a hotel data set that came out from Barry College that shows the immediate economic impact opportunity that happened overnight. People started coming to Colorado, and there was this influx of money coming into the destination. 
And it was that first mover advantage, which is a signature of the cannabis and hemp opportunities that still exist today. The question is what destinations want those first mover opportunities and which ones want to sit back and take it slower. And that's up to each destination to decide how to navigate. Every destination is different. Some are more conservative. Some need more education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when Colorado flipped live, that was definitely a watershed moment. And of course, here we are today with 23 states with adult use legalization laws. Mm -hmm. So what that opens up is opportunity. Some of those opportunities are really, I think, rare, though, for DMOs. And what I've learned in my work with destination organizations is that first step is always stakeholder engagement. Well, first off, client. You have to educate the client, the data, bring the case studies, and bring the conversation current and get aligned with the client and the DMO team. From there, you step out into stakeholder engagement. It's not uncommon for me to meet with elected officials as well as key partners, key attractions, key hotels that are part of the destination leadership and help steer the story of the destination and the strategy of the DMO in some ways. So basically bringing stakeholders up to speed through education, data, and case studies. Um, And then once we get there, typically it's reaching out to the cannabis stakeholders, the cannabis shops, the cannabis lounges, maybe even cannabis brands or manufacturers, could be the tour companies, whatever the assets are that exist in market, getting a lay of the land. What is the landscape? Who exists? What are they doing? And then you start parsing through that. And while you educate the cannabis stakeholders about the power of the visitor economy and the the visitor spend, you also start to understand and vet what kind of partners exist and who are going to be great partners long-term as an evangelist and a storyteller for the cannabis voice or the cannabis brand within the destination. And I've even gone to the extent to do like a sub brand, you know, positioning statement and guidelines for a DMO, not necessarily a public facing one, but behind the scenes. So we have the guardrails and the goalposts to be able to talk accurately to what is our story? What are the key content pillars? What are our differentiators? How are we positioning cannabis within the greater destination organization as a brand? So that's the whole first phase is usually that. And then we step into the initial kind of cannabis microsider webpage that exists on the DMO website. And what is that first communication? And this is where it gets unique as well. It's like, you have to talk about state laws, tips and tricks, do's and don'ts, what's legal, what's not, what are the warnings or the safety uh, tidbits that you want to provide travelers? And then what is that initial foundational content suite that reflects the brand and folds into the destination website and story And how do we keep maturing that steadily forward at the right pace? And I've learned that too. Some destinations want to get right to it. Some have a very different landscape with stakeholders and we take slower steps when it's appropriate. And my job is to meet DMOs where they're at, be an educator, be a knowledge source, and then help with strategy, which eventually really folds into content support and really touch points across multiple places is how it ends up happening. Yeah. And I think the operative word there is education. And I've learned a lot from you. I mean, I thought I had a pretty good handle on cannabis and what it could mean for a destination, but it's way more than just getting a smooth buzz on. You hit on a number in our pre-show conversation, a number of, shall we say, higher benefits, such as human rights, cultural heritage, arts and cultural enhancement, diversity, equity, and inclusion, not to mention the taxes that are being generated and how it's a workforce magnet for some, as we are in this 
you know, battle for talent. Uh, there are going to be some people who are going to choose a state to make their mark based on the availability of recreational cannabis. So take us deeper into the impact of cannabis and how DMOs can weave these messages into their marketing. Yeah, happy to. One quick point on the visitors choosing destinations to make their mark. Just recently got back the 2023 data set from the Portrait of the American Traveler um, MMGY study that I've been collaborating on with them since 2020. And that's going to be announced in a couple of weeks. Kind of the cliff notes is there is a cannabis travel audience that is ready, willing, and able that accounts for 37% of the active leisure travel audience. That's approximately 72 million Americans. And 70% of Gen Zs are choosing destinations wow. where they have access to at least one cannabis-related experience while on vacation. So from a planning standpoint and an evolution standpoint, recognizing that cannabis and the relationship of the younger generations to cannabis, the data shows that preparing for that is important, which goes back to kind of destination preparedness and destinations being able to not only prepare for visitors, but also prepare and create safety for their hospitality industry in their destination. You know, cannabis is no longer underground. It is a legal industry in many states, 23, and understanding that that's part of the landscape and making sure that your visitor economy is prepared and the DMO is prepared and you're all working together to usher this forward and include, right? We talk a lot about community alignment at DI right? and community alignment and shared values, right? Community aligned values. And that value of inclusion includes any taxpaying business or experience creator that visitors are seeking. And the data shows that cannabis is that. And I don't want to leave out hemp. Hemp is another industry that is an incredible set of tools because it's essentially the same plant as cannabis. The only difference between the two is that hemp are the cannabis varietals that don't have a high level of the intoxicating therapeutic compound THCA. Mm -hmm. And let me just, I mean, just build on that THCA, which is found in the raw plant is essentially, you know, the science shows that it's incredibly anti-inflammatory and it's non-psychoactive inducing in any way, shape or form. It's only when you heat up the plant that it becomes this psychoactive or psychotropic intoxicating experience. Right. So all that being said, hemp, I look at as more of a sustainability, regenerative wellness tool, right? Biologically. When I look at the THC rich side, it gets a little bit more into well-being and look at looking at ancient cultures and how they used cannabis as a tool to really uplift spirituality and work. You could, you, however you want to frame it, whether it's mental health, spiritual health, people have used cannabis, ancient cultures have used cannabis for millennia. So humans co-evolved with the cannabis plant. It was first discovered in ancient China. We had access to cannabis all the way up until 1937, less than a hundred years ago. We had been imbibing and using this plant and biologically, we have a system inside of our bodies called the endocannabinoid system that works directly with the cannabis and the hemp plant. And the system is throughout your whole body and it has receptors and the cannabis and hemp plant totally aside, we actually create two internal endocannabinoids, they call them, they're endogenous. So it's a fully functioning system without even imbibing or taking or consuming the cannabis or the hemp plant in any way. And the primary function of the system is to bring your body back into optimal balance or homeostasis. 
It's the master modulator of all your other systems, your skeletal system, your reproductive system, et cetera. This is the science and the biology behind the plant and why it represents well-being and wellness. Now, when you take the cannabis plant, it flushes that system and those receptors, and it works toward bringing your body back into balance. So that's a little bit of biology of why cannabis from at a biological level is about kind of well-being and wellness. So what happened in the 1930s that essentially convinced politicians to throw away centuries of use of a plant that has all those properties? It's a great question. And this is actually going to dovetail right into where you were headed with marketing and themes and content and topics. The story of cannabis is incredibly compelling, and it is a story about human rights in a lot of ways, and more specifically, patient access as the inflection point to why we're having the conversation today. You know, it really starts in the early 1900s, where you see a influx of kind of immigration into the United States. You see different cultures arriving here. Some of these cultures use different intoxicating products and smoking specifically. But at that time, many believed that there was an orchestrated campaign to stigmatize newcomers to the United States, and cannabis was the tool to enforce that. And there was words that were even created. People look at the word marijuana today as a word that was very, in a calculated way, created to create this fear of foreigners and fear of other cultures. And with that, it basically the mechanism that was used to make cannabis illegal was taxation. It was the Tax Act. And then that kind of started wiping out hemp and cannabis from access slowly, steadily, and surely. But I want to point out that in the early 1900s, cannabis was available on pharmacy shelves throughout the entire United States. Fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I curated a, a museum exhibit for Sonoma County Museum a few years back and literally had photos of these pharmacy shops with cannabis tinctures on the shelves and bottles and applications. So anyways, in the 1930s, 1937, prohibition hits and you have this tax act come into play and you see like, I don't know, it's like there's basically this strategic plan where it starts criminalizing cannabis. And then the story of prohibition begins, which goes on, you know, up until 1996, arguably in California. Now, part of that story is a story of marginalized groups. And that's where we get into the DEI content kind of content draft. Mm -hmm. You know, aside from the roots of prohibition and how that potentially and probably and in a fact-based way kind of had a racist agenda to it, you know, that gave birth eventually to the rise of kind of the prison complex and incarceration and all kind of intertwined with laws and possession. And I know a lot of people listening to this are aware, or maybe, maybe not, that there were a lot of people incarcerated over simple cannabis possession, even paraphernalia, having a pipe yeah. or you know papers. It was extreme laws that translated to incarceration that I believe it was in the 1970s gave rise to not just the public prison, but the private prison complex, which, I mean, of course, that levels up the severity of, you know, what is this human rights discussion around cannabis when you know, you're starting to put occupancy rates on prisons and that's a, and that's a KPI. That was one of the most disturbing things that I learned in studying the history of cannabis legalization. So all of that translates to today where a lot of the legal cannabis industries throughout the United States have equity programs where they prioritize people 
that were negatively impacted by the war on drugs. These are people with, with convictions, felonies, people who have served time, been in, you know, and this is an interesting story um, when it comes to the story and the arc of cannabis illegalization, urban BIPOC communities, which translated to priority licensing of the legal and licensed industry of today. The very first equity license in the entire world was issued in Oakland, California. And I've been working with Visit Oakland for a few years now, and that was a key part of that story. At that shop in Oakland, California, there is a cultural landmark, and we celebrate the fact that that was the very first equity license because that was a moment in history, and that's part of that cannabis story. And the Oakland story is very rich and deep. And Oakland was one of those urban centers that was highly targeted during the war on drugs. So from a DEI point of view, all of that. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out there was other groups that were kind of part of that story of the war on drugs. There were the legacy producing cannabis communities up in Mendocino and Humboldt, which were all kind of part of that back to the land movement, that era that happened after the hippie movement. And that counterculture essentially was threatening. Mm-hmm. And they're also cultivating cannabis. And I think the Emerald Triangle, the famous cannabis producing region of Northern California, at one point in the 1980s, 1990s, was providing cannabis. I think 90%, it's estimated, of the cannabis in the United States was coming out of Northern California. So there's a long history of craft cultivation there, right? So not only was that, were those communities have a fear, going back to kind of the marginalized group side of that story for the legacy producing communities, to this day, you go up there, a beautiful, really interesting culture up there, in my opinion. It's very bohemian, very back to the land, very nature-centered. Time is fluid, very community-driven. As somebody who's traveled a lot and seen a lot of different types of cultures, I love visiting that part of Northern California because it's incredibly special. And when I travel to the United States, that part is one of the few parts where I really feel like I'm almost visiting a foreign country in some ways because the culture is so rich. Yeah. And that culture was developed because they were basically fighting the helicopters and what they called camp. Um, it was the campaign against marijuana planting that was initiated by local, state, and federal governments where they were flying military helicopters into these rural communities and incarcerating these cultivators who were growing cannabis illegally at the time. And it's a it's an interesting juxtaposition of a kind of a bohemian back to the land community with this kind of outlaw stigma. And then how was how did that translate to this marginalized group during the war on drugs? The other group to point out is the LGBTQ plus community, which was suffering from the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. And they were using cannabis as a frontline medicine because it helped stimulate appetite. And it also helped with the nausea and a few other things. And they also were one of those groups that were kind of targeted because they were deeply embedded with cannabis. In that respect, it was very medicinal and it was very obviously medicinal from a physical point of view because of the wasting syndrome and some of the terrible kind of symptoms and and ailments that come in the 1980s because there was no medicine. No one, there was nothing that was working. The only thing working was cannabis. So all of those stories for me today in travel and destination translate to strategic storytelling and how do you uplift that? And then, of course, with the legacy producing communities, you get all into the craft, the genetics, the breeding, the harvest, the curing, the preservation. Think barrels to wine. So when you start thinking more in the leisure component, 
I mean, you have content wells and funnels that are just so expansive with hemp and cannabis. What a fascinating history. So one could say, yeah, that's California, but there are got to be some Mm -hmm. great examples from the rest of the United States or North America where the legalization of recreational use has really played some, some great dividends for destinations. Tell us some of those stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, California, of course, it is California. So there's a handful of destinations that are that are actively moving forward here, but there's about nine that are really leading the way. We have about 30 cannabis lounges now, cannabis beverage bars, culinary-infused dinners at the Claremont. I mean, it's really ripe and rich. Other destinations that really stand out, Minnesota is one. And it's a really interesting study because right now, cannabis beverages are being sold in Whole Foods. They have five milligrams of activated THC, the intoxicating element, and those are literally legal today in Minnesota and being sold in mainstream retail outlets. And uh, that's a fascinating approach that the Minnesota uh, regulators and legislators made. And it's really a competitive advantage and a differentiator for that destination. When I think in terms of differentiation and competitive advantage, especially that first mover, it's all the data that's wrapped around that mainstream retail and how is that functioning. And it's greasing the wheels in a way that the licensed permitted landscape is a little bit different and more complex. So I'm going to be really interested to see how Minnesota continues to innovate. Las Vegas is a fascinating destination. Yeah, totally. It's a sensory playground for adults, right? Everything from Cirque du Soleil to incredible meals to lights and fountains and performances. And so very cannabis complimentary, I would say, is Las Vegas. And what's happening there is they've just licensed their first set of lounges. So it's going above and beyond retail. You're opening up what I'm referring to as kind of the cannabis experience economy, which really is interconnected with the visitor economy. And to watch what happens in Vegas is going to be fascinating. You also have the Kootenai Rocky region up in Canada. That is a legacy producing region that's very famous for BC Bud. And places like that, as well as Humboldt, that's famous for cannabis as well, and the Emerald Triangle. And you know, you have destinations like Hawaii. Uh, that has a lot of attention on it mm-hmm. because of Maui Waui and Acapulco Gold and some of these very famous cannabis varietals. Those are some of the destinations that are taking forward steps. With the Kootenai Rocky region, very much like I kind of quickly tapped on with the Emerald Triangle, an amazing story of like local community, really intensive craft cannabis that is just like wine grapes, is all about the terroir. What's the microclimate? Where is it grown? And probably most important, who is the grower? How do they treat it? What are the footsteps in the garden? And how does that translate to premium craft quality cannabis, which I believe is going to be a signature of legacy producing regions like the Emerald Triangle, as well as the Kootenai Rockies and others. So yeah, those are some of the destinations that I keep an eye on. The Arizona market's interesting as well in Phoenix is starting to take off. And of course, New York, you know, I keep an eye on any tourist destination that is is a leader economically from a visitor economy impact. And New York is going to be a fascinating one to watch as well. I think I want to point out too, Bill, if it's okay, kind of during this rant that cannabis is unique in its way to fold in as a enhancement tool for a travel itinerary. Mm -hmm. So what the science is showing is that as wine pairs with food, cannabis 
pairs with activities and experiences. And what that basically means is there's certain kinds of cannabis that are famous and they have the science behind it for stimulating appetite, accentuating palate, flavor, taste, and texture. So what once was the munchies with Cheech and Chong <laughs> became a front, right? right became a frontline medicine with the AIDS epidemic and the LGBTQ community. And today, I believe cannabis is a precursor to a Michelin star meal at the appropriate dose and the appropriate kind that stimulates and prepares your your kind of senses for that eating experience. So cannabis is the new vermouth. There's also types of cannabis that are great precursors to art. It, it makes sound sweeter. It makes art more thought-provoking, where you see connectivity and you interpret in a different way. Um, and you're very present and shapes and colors become more accentuated. There are certain types of cannabis that are energetic. Typically, these have a citrus aroma to them. And it will give you a boost of energy and bring you into the present moment, which is a signature of cannabis. And it will be a great precursor to a beautiful hike in Lake Tahoe or along the coast of Sonoma and time in nature. So starting to look at cannabis as a enhancement tool. And I also want to point out that it's not just smoking. This is beverages. You got Paps Blue Ribbon. You got Lagunitas. This is the future, is this non-inhalation consumption option that is becoming known. Sunstone Winery out in the San Inez Valley in Santa Barbara is just created the Sunstone Spritz, which is, you know, a, another example of this sophisticated single origin terroir driven a la wine and wine industry version of the cannabis beverage industry that is blossoming. And it's an exciting time for cannabis as we move into this kind of experience economy with a little more maturity and sophistication. So let's take it 10 years down the path. What percent of cannabis consumption will still be smoking? I get the feeling that the future, as you just said, is all going to be in edibles. And there's going to be a, you know, it's actually probably going to be like smoking cigarettes. I mean, people object to it less about the health than about the smell. If you have your crystal ball out, right. what's the percentages that you see in say 10 years? So smoking cannabis and smoking cigarettes are very different. Cannabis is a medicine. It was designated essential during the pandemic by multiple countries and states for a reason. The point I'm getting at is it's going to take years to educate that cannabis smoking is different than tobacco smoking. Unfortunately, smoking in general has become, you know, a stigma in itself. Right. So I do believe the future is going to be with really quality craft cannabis flower. I believe it's going to start parlaying into, well, I think United States is going to start catching up, honestly, with the rest of the world. And they're going to understand that from the cannabis flower and different cannabis varietals, you can create hashish, which is like a fine bottle of wine that is created from grapes. And there's a way to approach that. Cannabis flower won't go away. It will still be the core part of the culture, but there's going to become a premium sophistication and knowledge around the art of hash making and how that's basically the cannabis version of a very fine Screaming Eagle bottle of wine. When it comes to the non-inhalation side, I believe it's going to lead with beverage 
And I think that edibles are going to be in there as well. But I believe, you know, just like craft beer, spirits and wine, I think beverage is going to be the become kind of the core consumption method in the travel vertical for the visitor experience economy for most of the visitors that don't want to be in around or even associated with smoking. Mm-hmm. You already see this, see this happening. There's a cannabis beverage bar in Oakland, California called Rosemary Jane. That again is like a woman equity, you know, BIPOC black owned beverage bar that is serving up mocktails of cannabis beverages with they're dressed up and they're beautiful. That's where the future is headed. I believe I think we're going to see more integration of cannabis beverages into the hospitality sector, and that's going to be an evolution. And I do think that that notion of effect pairing cannabis, which is a catching trend in California, and that's basically using cannabis as an enhancement tool for a vacation itinerary or for an experience, whether it's art, a dining experience, food, or nature, is going to continually become a trend of how do you pair cannabis with the setting or the environment you're walking into. So it becomes down to mindset and setting, you know, microdosing for targeted effects that are going to optimally enhance an experience. And I think that that's the future of kind of cannabis travel and tourism as far as the activated THC side. I believe that the unaltering, non-intoxicating applications of hemp and cannabis, which includes CBD, CBN is catching trend. CBN is one of the hundreds of therapeutic compounds found in the cannabis and hemp plant. And CBN is increasingly becoming known for a restful night's sleep. And uh, it's one of the fastest selling product types in California today. It flies off the shelves. So you have CBN. You also have the rise of CBG products, which is another therapeutic wellness compound found in cannabis that is um, the science shows is incredibly beneficial from like a neuroregenerative point of view and things like that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer, but this is what I've learned from research and being obsessed with what I do and passionate about it. Um, So I think that all those therapeutic compounds found in cannabis, including the essential oils or the terpenes, are going to become and express themselves in spa and other well-being and wellness applications. I think a really interesting point here, too, is because the cannabis industry is new and the hemp industry, when they test the flowers or the products, they look at and they actually measure the essential oils in it, uh, the terpene profiles, we call it, in cannabis. And I'm wondering from a food industry and a wine industry point of view, how is that new burgeoning data opportunity going to translate into the wine industry and the food industry when it comes to measuring essential oils and aromatics in agriculture in general and grapes, et cetera, because now we're measuring that at a very different level. Cannabis products are tested at parts per billion. In California, it's parts per billion, which is something that's extraordinary. It's the first of its kind to be tested with that severity and nuance. The benefit of that is now we're measuring these essential oils, which is really interesting. So I think the future of cannabis travel and tourism is going to be rooted and centered around wellness, which is biological. And I think well-being is kind of the new frontier. Cannabis as a vehicle and a toolkit to enhance quality of life, including that altering intoxicating capability that for a millennia has been used in really interesting ways, including meditation, kind of spiritual health. So I'm really interested to see how it evolves in that well-being vertical. Fascinating stuff. Brian, 
What a great font of information, and uh, we'll get to how people can find you in a few minutes. But first, we got to get to your bonus round question, and we can go a million different directions on this, and you gave me a lot of great ideas, but the one that just kind of stuck out in my mind, and hey, I'm a music guy, is before all this, before cannabis, before becoming a subject expert, you were actually the lead singer of a Japanese country music band. So tell us about that. Oh, man. I'm so grateful for this experience. <laughs> so grateful. I love travel and culture, period. I've been doing it from a young, young age. My parents and my family, it's been one of the themes is, you know, I was always taught from a young age that the best education you can get is travel. And I took to that being the youngest in my family and been a lot of places. One of those places I visited on a program, I went to UC Irvine, I was studying international relations and I did a summer, I did a study abroad, a hundred days at sea visiting 10 countries. One of those countries was Japan. So in college, I visited Japan, went to Kobe, went to Kyoto, said, I am coming back here after college and I'm going to live wow. here. So after college, I graduated. My goal at that time was to, I was entertaining the idea of trying to get into global kind of politics, I guess, and work for the UN, which, which, which obviously faded, but it took me over to Japan because I wanted to learn the language and I wanted to also spend time immersed in that culture. I found it fascinating. So I moved over to Japan. Um, I taught English my first year out of school and used Japan as a base camp to kind of backpack around that part of the world. And part of my experience there was joining this Japanese country band, because whenever I traveled, especially when I was in a place, I always wanted to get as authentic and rooted in the real local culture as possible. Right. And I was reading this uh, kind of this foreigner audience magazine that was one of two when I was living in Osaka. And there was a little line that said, need country singer with a phone number. So I called it and it led to this, which was basically me meeting one of my best friends. He was a very high powered, like Japanese businessman that loved steel guitar and country music. And their current lead singer was moving back to Australia. So I replaced him and I became part of this Japanese country band. And there was literally about 12 members. We had two fiddles. We had steel guitar. We had drums. We had like three other kind of singers, like backup singers and duet partners. And I lived in Japan for a couple of years. So part of this experience was having a very dear friend and, and, and really him and his wife became like family to me. And uh, I ended up staying with them even after I finished my uh, my work in, in Osaka uh, teaching English. But they lived in Nara. So I, I made dear friends, which was a great part of this. Also, the other band members were fantastic. We used to rehearse, you know, once or twice a month in Nara in this little studio, which was the ground floor of my buddy's house. And then we would play gigs. So we played multiple gigs. We played in Tokyo. We played in Kobe. We played in Kyoto played in Nara. Part of the memories too is just having the band practice and going and singing karaoke together and just so much time being the only foreigner with this amazing Japanese band. And they were called, we were called Buds Bounce. And, you know, if anyone who came to the show, it was an interesting experience because it's Japanese country band. We did a lot of covers, right? So it's all covers from John Denver to Brad Paisley to Garth Brooks and beyond. One of the funniest things, too, is like when he went to the show, it was like Halloween, like everyone dressed up in like full on costumes. So it was like hats and bandanas around the neck and like spurs and just like over the top Halloween <laughs> vibes great. on stage. Oh, it was hilarious. 
and here's a, here's the kind of the extension of that. Once I moved back from Japan, I used to fly over twice a year and perform. That continued on for the next five years or so. I flew back to Japan Gotta twice a year, yeah. once for rehearsal, and then <laughs> once in fall, and we would go and perform in Osaka. And I did that, you know, until it didn't make sense anymore. But yeah, so that's kind of my story about. That's crazy. Any recordings? Yeah. So we got a few CDs. And honestly, it was kind of the jump off point for me to decide to move to Nashville, Tennessee and pursue a career as a songwriter. So it kind of put me on a life path for a few years that was a whole nother adventure. And we absolutely have CDs. And um, I think if you Google Buzz Bounce, you'll probably be able to find some information on online about it, too. And so, yeah, thanks for asking, Bill. That was a that was a key part of my experience in Japan. I'm sure people are going to want to know more. You've opened my eyes and I'm sure a lot of our listeners eyes. How do they find more about you and your work? Yeah. So my website, Brian with an I, brianapplegarth.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-A-P-P-L-E-G-A-R-T-H.com. Um, everything you have is there. Or you can email me, B-A at brianapplegarth.com and we can, uh, you can contact me that way. Great. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Looking forward to seeing you on the road at many of our industry conferences in the next uh, 365. And uh, again, Thanks for everything. Same, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Take care. All right. And thanks to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Carvertize. Last fall, when Visit Lake Charles wanted to target Austin, Texas with its culinary travel campaign, it used a secret ingredient, and that was a fleet of rideshare vehicles covered with tantalizing images of Lake Charles. And while those cars were cruising the streets of Austin, web hits up 65% and sales at hotels and restaurants 8% over a year prior. Carvertize has helped hundreds of national brands and DMOs extend their messaging to where people live through a fleet of over a half a million wrapped Uber and Lyft cars. Place your brand and message front and center this summer with Carvertize. Check out the video at carvertize.com slash brands. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to past editions of the Z News, our blog, our homepage, position papers, the book destination leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMO you. That's DMOPros with a Z dot com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. That moon laid pass beside the Alamo and rose my rose of San Antonio and rose my rose of San Antonio